If you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. So, Corey, it is a dark and stormy... Well, actually, it's not a No, dark it's beautiful, and stormy, it's starry actually, night. I don't even know why I said that, because I like the idea of saying <laughs> it's a dark and stormy night. But it's a night. Yes. And we have kind of an interesting evening planned. Mm-hmm. So we're going to record three episodes tonight, all to do with something that a lot of us maybe don't think a lot about, but what the church teaches and what it doesn't teach and what are the boundaries of what the church teaches and what we're supposed to believe and not supposed to believe. And there's a lot of that being talked about today because there's a great deal of controversy around certain beliefs that have entered the church. And well, we're going to sort of tackle those this evening. Yeah. And I think it's important that we do. I mean, it's the kind of subject that people often feel uncomfortable talking about and so maybe avoid. Um, But hopefully we can have that conversation for people. So uh, (laughs) prime the pump to be a little less uncomfortable with it. Yeah. And I have a feeling we, we were just talking before we started the recorder here that we're trying to figure out how to sort of get the ball rolling tonight. But I have a feeling that once we get into this, this is going to get kind of lit up uh, because <laughs> a, lot of these, a lot of these topics, they really go to the heart of what the church teaches and what it means to be uh, not only a Catholic, but a Christian in general. And so let me kick this off uh, with by saying something about that. Everything we're saying tonight, obviously, this is the Considering Catholicism podcast, but I think just about everything that we're going to say tonight uh, in these three episodes that'll follow is kind of part one, part two, part three, uh, applies generally to Christianity, not exclusively just to Catholicism. Sure. I mean, we're going to talk about the context of Catholicism. A lot of these issues tonight can be applied across Protestantism, evangelicalism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, because we're all kind of swimming in the same cultural waters and dealing with the same issues. Yeah. So that being said, here's, I think I want to find my way into it tonight. So I'm of uh, a certain age uh, that is um, um, a, a larger number than your age. Undisclosed, but larger. Yes. <laughs> Somewhat larger. However, uh, I, I feel like I lived or have lived. I don't, I don't want to use the past tense there. But I have been living uh, a sort of a cusp uh, era because what I remember when I was in school is it felt like while I was there, it was sort of the end of a cultural era. Sort of a changing of the guard. Changing of the guard and was going on while I was in school. And so I kind of saw the last gasps of what was and the beginning of what was to come. And of course, you grew up in the the new era of what, what it has become. So I want to start off by saying, you know, when I first became a Christian and I was on a, a very large secular, you know, very liberal university campus. And I became a Christian through a uh, campus ministry that was, I want to say it was conservative. It was theologically conservative. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that even the fact that you have to sort of say that plays into what we're going to talk about tonight, but it was a campus ministry. It's called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And it has moved and it has changed as we'll get into tonight from a doctoral standpoint. But when I was there, it InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, when I was in college, was a very theologically conservative 
evangelical ministry. Hmm. And I became a Christian. I was studying history of philosophy. And so I quickly became excited about that and was involved in a lot of campus ministry activities in which it was all about sort of sharing the truths of the Christian faith, mm-hmm. right? Uh, everything from sort of, you know, the resurrection, the life of Christ, you know, the Trinity, the this, that. I mean, you kind of get it on this list. And there was sort of an orientation that we had that Christianity consisted in these truth claims. There was a lot of propositional truth. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of a formal word. There was a man named Jesus of Nazareth and he lived in a certain year and he died on a cross and he rose again. There is a God and that God is in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? Et cetera, et cetera. Things that are either true or they're not true. They're either true or they're not true. And part of the the feeling was, was to be a Christian was to say yes to these things, to believe these things. There was a substance to our faith. And of course, part of the the mission of the church is in a sense to to persuade other people, to introduce these truths to other people and have them say yes. Now, you know, quickly you'd say, well, geez, is it just about believing those things? No, of course, you that those truths would then influence and change and reform your life and you would act according to them. But you sort of became a Christian by coming to know and believe and act on these truths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that would be your starting point, both both chronologically, like you would come to believe and then you would change your life, but also sort of just essentially like one followed from the other and, and action followed from belief or, or works followed from faith. Correct. Now, all of these propositional truths I'm talking about, let's use the shorthand term doctrine for them, that Christianity consists of some doctrines. And as you say, those doctrines... You encounter them, you consider them, you hopefully come to agree with those doctrines or in, internalize those doctrines, and then those doctrines become the impetus for changing your life and your decision-making and who you are going forward, right? right. You become yeah. shaped by those doctrines. And of course, the primary one is that that Jesus was God and he died on a cross and he rose again, and that's the primary central doctrine, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Then I went to seminary. And when I was at seminary, it was the end of an era that was commonly called confessional Protestantism or confessional Christianity. And by confession, what you meant was not confession like in the Catholic Church of going to confession, but confession meaning these are the doctrines that we confess. So you would say the Lutheran Church or the Presbyterian Church or the Baptist Church was defined by the doctrines that it confessed. Right, and those were often summarized in documents called confessions, which are a bit like creeds, like it's a it's a catalog or a summary essentially of truths. Or catechisms. Yeah. You know, so for a longer form. Yeah. Yeah. So I I went to a seminary that was a in the Dutch Dutch Calvinist tradition. And so we had the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession as two of these documents that sort of shape who we were and what we believed. And we were defined by, we were a church or denomination that believed these things, believed these doctrines. Right, right. And then they shaped everything that we did and how we lived. But they were sort of the beginning of the identity of the denomination. Now, what I saw in the four years that I was in seminary was this sort of end of this era of churches and denominations and maybe even people defining their faith confessionally. 
defining their faith around a belief in a set of doctrines. So what ended up happening is you you no longer thought of your church or your denomination as formed by these doctrines or defined by these doctrines. You began to think of it in terms of the things that we did. And there was a fancy word for that, right? Praxis, which is just basically the fancy like Latin word for practice, right? So you began to shift away from being defined by your doctrinal beliefs or your theology and being defined by your practices, how you lived, what you did. And like I said, it used to be that your doctrine shaped your practice, but it seemed like over time, the emphasis was on the practice and less on the doctrine. And then what I've seen in my career since then, I think, is that broadly in Christianity and in America, at least, North America, United States, Canada, uh, and Europe, is that we now define our faith, we now define our beliefs, our theology around the things that we do, our practices. So here's the question that I guess I wanted to throw out tonight. And again, you and I are from two different generations. So it's interesting to maybe get your perspective on this, but are we, have we moved into, a, in a sense, a post-doctrinal era where doctrine doesn't really matter anymore. Nobody really knows what doctrine is. Nobody really cares. Nobody's going to fight battles over doctrine. It doesn't really shape how we think and how we live. In a sense, we define our faith by what we feel and do. We'll get back to the conversation in just a few moments. But first, I'd like to ask for your support in producing and expanding this podcast. It's produced by a 501c3 nonprofit ministry called One Whirling Adventure, with a mission to excite and educate people about historic Catholic Christianity and to equip them to live, share, and defend it in the 21st century. Now, the production budget of this podcast isn't big, but it is real. We've set a goal of 40,000 worldwide downloads in 2023, with a crowdfunding goal of $35,000 to make that happen. Would you help us make that happen? If so, please go to consideringcatholicism.com. You can see our GuideStar charity rating there and donate online with a one-time or recurring gift. And if you have a business or organization interested in sponsoring our ministry, please shoot me an email, greg at consideringcatholicism.com. Thank you for listening and considering helping us to help others consider Catholicism. And now, back to the conversation. So that's my big wind-up. I'm going to throw it to you for your thoughts. Yeah, so as you mentioned, there's a generation gap or two between us. And so I was oh, Don't gro- make me sound so <laughs> Um so so I was growing up in the 90s. Um I will uh, I'm not ashamed to say how old I am. And so at that point I think the the change that you're identifying like the balance had tipped, but it takes a while for change to happen and it doesn't happen uniformly across different groups. Um, and in different places. And so like in the 90s, it was a, a sort of heyday of 
apologetics. Wait, let, let me say something about yeah, the nineties. Yeah. Cause I just, you know, frame that. You, so, you have a better perspective on it cause you were an adult. But. Well, what I'm just, <laughs> what I'm going to say is that to kind of disclose my age. So I got out of seminary and was ordained in 1990. So it was the generation of pastors, my generation of pastors that were the, the new young pastors in churches that people like you grew up in. Right. Because I was born in 1990. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just rub it in, Corey. Just make me feel right. But I was the, that was the young, hip, new pastor, mm-hmm. fresh out of seminary when you were like a little baby and little kids. So it was my generation that was going through this change of like, let's shift our thinking from doctrine to these other things. And then we hit the churches and basically, you know, led the churches of the nineties and the early two thousands that you grew up in. So I think it's an interesting, so yeah, you go from there. Yeah. So, so where I was going with that is I think it was patchy in the nineties and in the early two thousands, um, things were still transitioning. Like it was a sort of, um, heyday of apologetics or apologetics really popular. And so that was trying to argue propositional truth with people sort of to, to prove by reason or that either that the truths of Christianity really are true or at least plausible. Like you had, you had a lot of that. Um, but also a ton of what I remember from growing up was sort of the, what I would call the self-help sermon, which was, uh, the pastor gets up there, um, whatever the Bible passage was, you know, he talks about that and then it's about, okay, so how does this how should I apply this to make myself a, a better husband, a better father, a better wife, a better child, a better employee? How how can I apply this to make myself more fulfilled in my life? Like there was an awful lot of that, which I, I think relates to what you're talking about with praxis or with, with people's um, experience and with how they felt about their life being moved to the center of preaching and even exposition of, of the scriptures that taking a, a front seat and the the teaching or the doctrinal component taking a back seat. And so I, I think as I was growing up, that kind of approach was becoming more and more prominent. And, um, and as you know far better than I do, that was the era of kind of the seeker-friendly um, thing in the church, which was huge in Protestantism, but I think affected Catholics as well. And, and that, I think in my observation, always downplays teaching and hard moral truth claims. So so that was exactly what happened. So those of us who graduated in 90, the early 90s from seminary, we were all sent to these pastor's conferences. And it was just huge. I mean, I went to a dozen of them, two dozen of them. And you'd go away for this three-day pastor's conference somewhere or whatever. And these experts would get up and tell you the way that you're going to reach people, the way that we're going to do evangelization or evangelism, the way that we're going to connect with people is by centering it on them, centering their experience. So the question that what was pounded us by that older generation in seminary, like I said, because I was on that cusp, that confessional thing, was you were taught, take this Bible passage and then go look at commentaries and look at you know, lexicons and word studies and, and say, this is what the passage means. And then we went to the pastor's conference. They go, no, 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 you can't do that anymore because you're going to connect with the modern world and you're going to fill your church and get people in from the neighborhood. Then what you have to do is go up there and say, well, let's talk about you, Mr. and Mrs. sitting in the pew. And let's talk about, you know, you and maybe how the Bible might apply to you or how, what we can extract this to make it about you. And it, and it goes to a bugaboo. I know you've heard me say this before. 
I mean, from the first time I went into Bible studies, one of the things that's always just kind of rubbed my fur backwards Mm -hmm. is this whole thing where you would have a Bible study. Everybody sits around in a circle, you know, eating, you know, chips and dip or something like that. And you say, well, today the, the passage is whatever, right? And then, you know, the leader reads it and then he goes around the circle and says, so what does this passage mean to you? And it just have irritated me from the first day I became a Christian because I go, I don't really care what it means to you. And I don't care what it even, you shouldn't care what it means to me. We should both care what it means. Right, right. Right, what did God mean by it? What did the author of the passage, right? You know, the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit mean by it? What did he want to say to us? Not what it means to us. And so, yeah, there was a deliberate shift and the shift or the premise of that shift in the 90s and the early 2000s was that if we talked that way and if we preached that way and if we, you know, took that approach, that it would fill our churches. Right. And so kind of in the first two decades of my life into the first decade of, of this century, I think the church across the board, different, different kinds of Christians really made themselves vulnerable in that way. Because if you're unmooring things from, from teaching and from truth claim, and this is, not, of course, not to say that people's lived experiences don't matter, that, you know, sermons and exposition of the scripture shouldn't have practical elements to it. But if you're starting with that and that is, is the most important thing, then if there's a large cultural change or a change of perspective on truth, then you're you're just going to fall like dominoes um, when that sweeps through. And so I think in, in the last decade, that's what's happened, at least in this country and I think in a lot of other places, is that a church that was not focusing on what is true was hit by a tidal wave of cultural change and dispute, blatant disagreement with what the church taught on any number of things, but especially on sort of cultural and and personal morality. And it has meant that quite a lot of the Christians in our country have, have sort of just caved to that because if you're already starting with, let's cater to everybody's experience and feelings, then if the experience and feelings change and that's what's primary, then the teaching changes. Um, right. Well, we have to, we have to, uh, we, well, what we're told all the time, and we're even told it by some voices in the Catholic church, that we have to change the teaching of the church to reflect or attract people outside the church. You know, and so this comes to the central question. I want to kind of come back to this because I want to unpack it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And that is, have we moved to a place where doctrine is sort of an irrelevance anymore? That we're in, like I said, we're sort of in a post-doctrinal or post-dogmatic era. And, you know, maybe just real briefly of that to talk about the difference between sort of theology and and doctrine and Mm -hmm. and dog. Like in the Catholic Church, and the Catechism of the Catholic Church defines this really clearly. We have theology. Theology are are the things that we think about God and we hypothesize. Right. It's and, applying reason to the, the deposit of right. faith. Yeah. And then we have doctrine, which is sort of a step higher than that, where a theology has been formalized as a teaching. Right. It's authoritatively taught. taught. Yeah. And then we have what the Catholic Church calls dogma, which is considered to be revealed truths which must be believed. Mm-hmm. We don't. So those would be contained in, in scripture or in the, the infallible tradition of the church. Right. 
Yeah. And so dogma is something that is a revealed truth from above that we, we are bound to believe. We have to believe it. You can't not, we'll get into this, I think in the next episode or two, <laughs> but you can't not believe that and still be a Christian. So for example, the Trinity, um, you, you, you know, God is in three persons. Jesus rose from the dead and was bodily resurrected. You have to believe that. You can't call yourself a Christian and not believe that. That is revealed dogma of the church. And I think what happened is, and you know, this isn't a history of philosophy podcast, but really over the last couple of hundred years, there were a lot of trends in the Western world that eroded our notion of sort of supreme and revealed truth and objective truth, right? Sure. You know, for those listeners who follow this sort of thing, you know, you can go back to uh, Rene Descartes and you can talk about Barclay and Hume and Immanuel Kant and so on and so forth in this whole sort of way that the modern mind rebels against the notion that there are these dogmatic revealed truths that we have to adhere to. And that truth really has come out of, in the last hundred years or so, a notion of scientific empiricism for what we start to say is, well, what we do is we kind of look around and we see what's going on around us and then we sort of extract truth from that. And that really has crept into our, into our intellectual understanding of the faith. So no, we no longer ask, what has God dogmatically revealed? What has God revealed in his word or what is objectively true about faith, morals, Christian teaching, we say, well, what do people do? How do they feel? How does this work in the real world? And and then then truth begins to change. So let's let's put some skin on this thing and talk about real things, yeah. right? Yeah. So you know, let's look at the. You you tell me what are the two or three you know big hot button issues right now that would be illustrations of this. <laughs> um, well, I think in in our era, it usually boils down to something to do with sex, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, homosexuality. Um, is a big one um, that you've seen. Obviously, the cultural change is older because cultural changes always have long histories. But I'd say in the last decade or so, especially like since Obergefell and that kind of thing in this country, um, you've seen really rapid uh, popularization of the, of a belief that, well, I guess a, a belief that's in uh, in contradiction to the traditional Christian teaching about sexuality and marriage. Well, let's take that one on. Hold yeah. on a second. Let's 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 dwell there for just okay. a second because I think it's really because of course there are lots of ways that that people disagree with the church's teachings, but right? That's, but I think that's this, the one that everybody cares about, and this right is now. illustrative. Yeah. Okay. So there's a couple of ways that people will say, "Well, I don't think that's right, or it doesn't feel right, or it doesn't seem right, or it doesn't seem fair, or it doesn't seem the way that we ought to live." And if you reply, "Well, that's dogmatically revealed truth." Right. In other words, if I say that homosexual practices, so sodomy is a sin and that is a dogmatically revealed truth of the faith or whatever from above. Me just saying that, I guarantee there are people out there listening that they just bristled. Even if they agree with it, it might come on as just very strong. Yeah. Well, yeah, and they bristle. There's two different ways you could bristle. One is I could disagree with the statement, and the other, it, it I can be irritated that you would assume there is some absolute truth that you can impose on people. And that's what I want to get at is that this is an illustration of the fact that we don't accept that there are these absolute truths 
that can be imposed on us. Right. Right. And that's where I, I think we we're coming into this thing that doctrine doesn't really matter. It, it doesn't, it doesn't operate for us, for most of us in a way that it really conditions our thinking. It really frames our identity. It really puts a, a check on us. In other words, the notion that I might say, well, you know, I'm inclined to do X or inclined to believe Y, but I can't because I know that doctrinally that is wrong. You know, I'm not sure that there's one in five people who think that way. What do you think? I think it is definitely not a popular way to approach things. People may come at it of saying like you are by claiming an authoritative truth, you're you are sort of stomping on my reason or my ability to make a decision for myself. My freedom. But I think it's less often, some, sometimes it's couched in that language, but sometimes it's not even put in that language. I think a lot of times it's more based on feeling and desire for freedom and, and, um, and simply sort of a knee-jerk rebellion against that kind of authority. authority. The notion that there is... That there is authority in truth, that truth can be authoritative. You know, really, I th- think that the modern mind or the modern American consumer mind bristles against that. The and, note- in, and if there is authoritative truth, that it has some claim on me and can tell me what to do or not to do or what to believe or what not to believe. Right. I mean, the number of things that, you know, we can look at, you know, these surveys that people like Pew or Gallup do of Christians, and they say, how many Christians actually believe in the doctrines of their church? You know, the Catholic church, you can say, well, how many of them actually believe in transubstantiation? Right, how many right. of them actually believe in the moral teachings of their church? How many believe in this? And you go, less than half, sometimes less than a quarter <laughs> or less. And so you start to say, well, why would you be a part of a church that you didn't believe its doctrine? And this is where I think this disconnect is because people will say, well, I'm a Christian or I'm a whatever, or I'm a Catholic. I just don't believe in anything the Catholic church teaches mm-hmm. because it become my, my understanding of faith is not shaped by doctrinal beliefs. And I have talked to Catholics. I, I talked to somebody recently. I was having dinner with somebody, uh, my wife and I were, and, uh, and their, their spouse. And one of the people, they're, they're Catholics. And one of the people at the table says, well, you know, I don't know. I just, I just hope that, you know, my next life I come back. And I kind of laughed because we were in the middle of having dinner and I thought, oh, she made a funny, <laughs> you know, like, oh, let's play along. Oh, I hope I come back as a koala bear. And they're like, no, no. I mean, I really want to, and I go, what do you mean? And it's like, well, you know, I mean like reincarnation. I go, huh? And they're like, well, you know, I believe in reincarnation. I'm like, but you're a member of a Catholic parish and all that. It's like, they're like, well, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's okay, isn't it? They turn to their spouse. They go, it's okay to believe in reincarnation. They're like, yeah, I think so. I mean, I've never heard a priest tell me that it isn't. And besides, I mean, it just seems right to me. I mean, I don't know if, you know, the church can really say what it is or isn't, but it just seems right to us. But by the way, we volunteer at the St. Vincent de Paul Center and we do this and we do that. We that. So we're good Catholics. And so part of it is, is that, they begin to define their identity as of Catholicism not by the beliefs or adherence to the beliefs or doctrine, but by their sense of cultural identity or by their praxis, practices, by you know how they how they live, the kinds of activities they do. I go to I go to mass once a month, and I 
give money to this or that cause. And I, when my neighbor's driveway, my old man neighbor's driveway is full of snow, I shovel it off and it makes me a good Catholic. Mm -hmm. And I happen to believe in reincarnation and this and this and this or whatever else it is. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, if the church teaches that or not, whatever, I don't really, you know, pay attention to that sort of thing. And I think that this is, this is what I mean about kind of being a post-doctrinal era. And, and I think another thing that we were talking about before this is, and I'll hear, hear your take on this, but, you know, the big concern in ancient Christianity up until relatively recently was this whole thing that launched the Luther, you know, launched Luther, right? The whole question of faith and works. And so you had this whole notion of, well, are we saved by faith? Or are we saved by works, right? And then famously, uh, St. James says in the book of James, you know, faith without works is dead, et cetera, et cetera. But the big concern is that we would be people of faith without works. And I guess where I'm coming with this is maybe the modern person or the modern religious Christian, semi-religious Christian is somebody with who, who it's not a matter of they have faith without works, is that they have works without faith. And what they end up doing is defining their Christianity by a set of cultural patterns or behaviors, not by adherence to any particular set of beliefs. What say you? Yeah, no, I, I think that does get to the heart of the matter. Um, it, it reminds me, when you told me we wanted to talk about this, it reminded me of this passage in the introduction to Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis's book, where he's talking about how he's going to define Christianity, um, or a Christian, rather, as one who accepts the common doctrines of Christianity. And, and he knows that he's going to get criticism from people saying, well, wait, 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 wait. Um, isn't a person a truer Christian if they do the things that a Christian ought to do? Who are you to say, you know, that they have to, that belief is the, the defining character of a Christian. And his argument is that, well, sure. I mean, action is important, but if we're going to say that it's the definition of a Christian, then the word Christian becomes meaningless. Uh, he compares it to the word gentleman, which has lost its original meaning of, you know, a, a landed aristocrat. Um, but now it's just a term of approval. That man is a gentleman. He's good. He's kind. He, he does the things that I think a gentleman ought to do. But that means that gentleman is a useless word. It's just um, a term of approval. It means I like him. Um, and Christianity or Christ, the word Christian is at the risk of being used in that way, is that a Christian is a, you know, a bang up guy. Um, and, and, and if that's what it is, then, then it's a not useful as a descriptor and B the people who think and act like that are essentially on a slippery slope out of Christianity because there's no particular reason to believe anything or even to practice the faith, to go to mass, to go to church, to, to do any of that. Cause you can, volunteer for the soup kitchen or be nice, you know, shovel the old lady across the streets sidewalk when it snows without, you know, having to mess about with being called a Catholic, which is unpopular to be. Well, you, we, we had an episode not too long back. We talked about you could be a good, a good Hindu or a good Muslim and do that, or just a good secularist, a good atheist who decided to shovel the old lady's driveway. Right. And I just want to say, I, I can't even count the number of people that I've heard actually say that to me. Something to the effect of, well, don't tell me I'm not a good Christian. Mm -hmm. Don't tell me we're not good Christian people. You know, well, but you don't believe that 
any of the things that Christianity teaches or very few of them. Well, I know, but don't say we're not good Christian people. We're, we're, we're good Christian people. And it's like you say, like the gentleman thing. Look, I want to come back to as we kind of wind this episode up and then we'll transition to the next one. Let's go back to the Bible. Yep. Okay. And let's go back to the definition of faith because what people are really talking about is what is faith and what is the role of doctrine in faith? And so rather helpfully, uh, the Bible has given us a practical definition of faith. A definition? You mean, you mean, (laughs) we know what it means? Yes, we know what it means. It's been revealed dogmatically um, through the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse one, it's this, this whole chapter talks about faith and it begins. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So in other words, it's believing in the things that are unseen Mm -hmm. and it's the conviction that those are true. That's what faith is. Faith is being assured and convicted of things that cannot be seen. Believing in revealed truth from God. Correct. And then you go through the rest of that chapter, uh, Hebrews, and and the author of Hebrews, St. Paul, gives all of these examples. And he says, well, look at Noah. He believed God, and so he built the ark. Uh, You look at Abraham, who believed God, and he acted on those beliefs. And it goes through this whole heroes of the faith. They they didn't act on the things that were in front of them, in front of their eyes. They acted on the things that were unseen and heavenly, and they were convinced of the truths of those things. And those truths then affected their actions rather than their actions shaping their beliefs. Right. And and we were talking about authority earlier. I mean, the reason that they believed is because they trusted God and they accepted his authority. Otherwise, right. they would not have acted in that way. Right. So I, I guess the question is, and we're going to wrap up this episode and transition to the next one, but the question is, does doctrine really even matter? I, my answer to that would be doctrine does in fact matter. Does it really even matter to, to a lot of Christians today? You know, I'm not sure it does, but it should. Right. A lot of people don't want or don't think it matters and don't want to act like it matters. And it's boring and no one wants to talk about it. But but in, if we don't talk about it, if we don't talk about the things that are above, if we don't talk about those revealed truths, then our faith just becomes, as you say, uh, a, a pattern of cultural behaviors and we become uh, gentlemen Christians. Well, and and the pattern of culture that we adhere to is is very changeable then as, as soon as, you know, um, the mass of people decide that it should be different, then we just go along with it. And that sets us up for the next episode. Because what we're going to talk about uh, in the next episode is how far can you bend Christianity before it's no longer Christianity? So join us for the next episode when we talk about that. You know, as as our culture begins to shift and people begin to shift how they understand and practice the Christian faith, at what point is it kind of no longer the Christian faith anymore? So thanks, Corey. Let's, uh, we'll start this up in a minute and we'll see all of you listeners in the next episode. Yep. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit ConsideringCatholicism.com.
gmail.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com.